Hey, it's Ian Altman. My guest this week is Oscar Trimboli. Oscar's company, Deep Listening, is an organization where Oscar is obsessed with the commercial cost of listening. We're going to talk about the biggest mistakes when it comes to listening, the difference in the pace of how we think versus how fast we speak, how we can use deep listening in the workplace to get to the truth faster, and how with your clients and prospects, what you may be hearing isn't what you should be listening for. You're going to learn a ton. It is a fascinating episode with Oscar Tromboli. Oscar, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Ian. I'm really looking forward to listening to you today. Well, I don't know if you're going to be listening to me as much as I'm looking for brilliant insight from you, but I know that as an expert in, in the world of listening that uh, I know where you're coming from on that. But can you start by sharing something surprising about you that our audience may not know? Well, in 2007, my wife and I uh, went on a journey of training to climb Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa, one of the more accessible peaks in the world. It's the largest mountain in Africa, and uh, we spent nearly two years training. But halfway through that, uh, we had a bit of a bust up, and uh, my wife got a bit frustrated with all the training. We were doing it as part of a charity fundraiser with a group of other people, and she decided that, well, that wasn't the thing for her. And then uh, she said to me, you know, I, I really want to do it. And I said, well, here's the thing. You always wanted that dog. And if we summit Kilimanjaro together, you can get that dog. You've never seen somebody more focused on training from that point <laughs> on as my wife, Jenny, was. And she had shirts printed with a photo of the dog she wanted as our training shirts. And she had a different set of shirts printed when we were traveling to the airport. And everybody knew that uh, Jenny wanted a cross between a spaniel and a poodle, a spoodle. <laughs> and our dog's name is Kilimanjaro. Of course. So there's some, there's of something. course, the dog would have to be named Kilimanjaro at that point. Yeah. So people get confused because we shorten it to Killy. But uh, they think it's short for killer, and he's far from a killer, that's for sure. <laughs> Not that breed. Yeah, that, nah. that breed. I mean, people could be licked to death, I suppose. But Yeah, and you'd have to be pretty small to be licked to death by killer. He's <laughs> only about uh, a handful, no more, no more than that. Well, we are, we are dog people here also, and though I don't have any story tying it to climbing Kilimanjaro or Everest or any other peak, um, she's a rescue dog that's just full of energy. So um, I'm sure at some point during the podcast, there's a chance that someone could come near the building, in which case we could hear her, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're good guard dogs, that's for sure. They protect their territory and their, and their owners really, really well. So though many of our audience may be interested in keys to motivate people to summit the tallest peak on a given continent, I, I wanted to talk to you about your expertise when it comes to the power of listening. So what's the biggest mistake that you see people make or maybe misconception they have about listening? Yeah, most people listen in black and white and I'm trying to get the world to understand that maybe you should be listening in color. Uh, the, the black is listening to what they're saying and the white is watching their body language. And, and that's great. The biggest mistake people make is they're listening for what, people are saying rather than listening very deeply to what people are not saying. So if you remember this really simple rule, I speak at 125 words a minute, but I think 
at 900 words a minute, Ian. So if I speak at 125, I think at 900, there's a one in nine chance that what I say is what I'm actually thinking. Uh, and the more mathematically inclined people told me that's 11%. So there's an 11% <laughs> chance that what they're saying is what they're thinking. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm at the stage in my life where I'm spending probably too much time seeing doctors and not enough time just enjoying life. And if a doctor gave me an 11% chance of surgery, I'd be asking for a second opinion. Yet, in the workplace and in selling, we never ask this next question to explore what else they haven't said. So, Ian, if I would say there's a mistake, it's not listening to what's unsaid. You know, I love that. And I feel like as an interviewer, I should now be saying, well, gee, but what didn't Oscar just say right there? Yeah, so, that's exactly what you should be asking <laughs> right now. So it's and, – and, and it's funny because I think, I think about – in different scenarios, um, there was a there was a vacation property my wife and I were interested in, and so it's kind of a stereotypical sales environment. Which, as someone who speaks, writes, and teaches about sales, I'm as intrigued in the process as I am in whatever vacation property we might be looking at. Mm. And I remember at several times during the discussion. I would turn to the rep and say, so what haven't I asked for that I should be asking for? Mm. And each time they would give me a treasure trove of additional benefits and perks that I didn't know to ask for. My wife said, how did you know to ask for that? I said, you know, it's just I'm thinking this is something they probably haven't been trained to deal with. So they're just giving me their honest answer. My other question for you is that you said you think at 900 words per minute and you speak at 120 words a minute. I don't know that I think at a hundred at nine hundred words per minute. I may think much slower than that. So is that does everybody think at that kind of pace? So the the bell curve is the average is nine hundred. It goes right up to fifteen hundred words per minute for thinking, and down to about six hundred at the other end of the bell curve. And it plays out right now for you while you're listening to me. You're listening capability is 400 words a minute. So there's a gap between what I'm saying and what you're capable of listening to. So you're distracted because you're filling in the gaps. You're thinking about the next question. It's happening to you listening right now. You might be commuting between appointments and you're getting distracted about what you've got to do at the next appointment. And all of a sudden you have to remind yourself that, hey, I'm listening to a podcast and distraction, attention and focus are the biggest barriers to listening well. But if we come back to that 125-900 rule, I'd love to give everyone in the audience a really simple question. If there's one thing you wanted to take away from today, it would sure. be this question. And if you wanted to have one listening ninja move, this would be the move. Um, please don't try this at home with your loved ones. Um, <laughs> they'll see straight through it. But in the workplace, this makes sense. Whenever somebody says something that's around a really complicated explanation, simply ask them this. I'm curious what else you're thinking about on this topic and don't say anything after that. And what you'll notice is a completely different change in their body state and their energy. Most times people will draw in a really deep breath and it will kind of sound like, well, actually what I should have told you was, or what they'll say is, you know what's really critical that we haven't covered off? Or they'll say, 
Well, actually, the most important thing that my boss would say I needed to tell you was, and you hear these code words coming out, and what it means is they're speaking to what they mean rather than what they're saying. And when we think about what matters to people, what matters to people more is what they mean than what they say. We were having a presentation in a, in a pharmaceutical company. Sterile manufacturing is really important in this organisation and you could cut the tension with a knife in this room. There was about 25 people in this room that I was presenting to. And I just paused and I said, I, I turned to the CEO, I said, look, with your, with your permission, I'm going to ask something completely off script. And he said, and, and I said, is that okay? And he says, well, I'm not sure I have a choice. I said, no, you do. Um, I, I guess it comes down to whether you trust me. And he said, I'll go ahead. What have I got to lose? And I said, guys, there's something that I'd love to ask you because the tension in this room is really high. Right now, if you were to describe what's going on in your organization as a movie, what would it be? And the guys and the girls started to drop names, Die Hard with a Vengeance, Titanic, Towering Inferno, all these disaster movies. And in that moment, the tension got completely let out of the room and the CEO turned to me and went, wow, um, they would never have told me that. And if you listen for meaning, you can give people a permission slip to say what they really think by using metaphors as questions rather than asking very transactional questions around why, what, and how. As you know well. what? I, I, I love it. One of the um, – and, and getting into the science behind this is fascinating for me. One of, the, one of the questions that I often encourage people to ask is when you get an answer, from, when, when someone gives you an answer, and oftentimes it's around a rather complex subject, it's just, well, it's really interesting. Can you be more specific? Or, gee, you know what? What might I be miss, What might I be missing about that? About that answer? And it's mm -hmm. probably the same principle of just giving them the opportunity to speak more about what was in their head that didn't come out of their mouth. Yeah, and particularly when you're communicating complexity, metaphorical, analogous, anything that can draw a word picture that draws on the memory, something that's already there. So a simple example of this, a washing machine will have at least two rinse cycles. And in your mind, when you're thinking, it's sudsy thinking, you know, and the minute you speak, that's your rinse cycle. So it gets the information out. But even a washing machine has two rinse cycles as, as sales leaders, as people helping people solve complex problems in business. What we want to do is get as many rinse cycles out for those people who are speaking to us to help them think because it's actually not about you when you're listening. It's all about them. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. Do you know Michael Bungay-Stanier? Yes, I do. Yeah, okay. Um, not just because, well, you're, you're both from the, uh, the same both land. Both right? yeah. But um, so Michael, one of, the, one of the things in his book, The Coaching Habit, is when someone comes to you with an idea, he says, oh, and what else? Mm. He refers to it as his awesome questions, A-W-E and what else? Mm. And, and it's, it's fascinating because as you're describing this, I'm thinking to myself, this is great because there, there are so many underlying concepts that I've shared with people that didn't really have any science behind it. It just seemed to work. 
And now you're connecting the dots for me, which is just fascinating in this area of deep listening. Um, so, so give me give me some examples of scenarios where where you get that superficial answer and how this deep listening will really uncover the truth. Because I'm guessing the key to deep listening is that we're not getting the superficial answer we want to hear. We're actually getting the truth. Yeah, and this will liberate you if you spend a lot of time doing prep for discovery meetings. You know, that first discovery meeting, you know, a, a poor question might be, you know, what keeps you awake at night? Um, if you have to ask that question, you haven't even earned the right to be in the room. Google will be your friend and you can already figure that out. And I'll give you an example. Um, Ian, I have this thing called dyscalculus, which means I have a poor relationship with numbers. So I transpose numbers. So instead of writing 917, I might write 791, uh, and, and which is quite hilarious because I started off life as an audit clerk in an accounting firm counting spark plugs <laughs> in a motor vehicle dealer. And it took them eight weeks to figure out that I was transposing on manual spreadsheets. <laughs> and... Um, I was going on a sales call myself uh, about three years ago and I was referred into a group of actuaries and actuaries create very complex formulas that predict when you're going to die or predict the payout on life insurance or predict payout on auto accident insurance and things like that. They're the smartest kids in the room. They paid attention at maths. Um, they probably um, could teach the teacher maths. And they really love their models. Um, they're all about coding their thinking into software. So when I walk into a room with a bunch of actuaries, my subject matter expertise is negative, in fact. I, I, I'm at a loss. Yep. So they were explaining this model and this model that they were trying to do and they were struggling with getting it discussed in the organization and optimized. And I simply said to them, you know, what I'm most curious about is what you guys haven't put into your model. And three of them looked at each other like a lightning bolt had hit them and went, well, actually, it's this and it's that and it's broken because of it. And they were chatting to each other for at least 10 minutes and writing formulas on the board. And the formulas were literally in Greek, you know, cosine, yeah. all these kinds of things. And they turned to me and they said, how long have you been working in the insurance industry? This is an amazing breakthrough we've just made. And I said, eight, eight minutes, 10 minutes? I, my insurance industry expertise is the net sum of this meeting. But you speak like you've been in the industry your whole life. And it was that moment where they could explore their own thinking and I gave them permission to go, what's not in the model? And um, there's a great book written by Kath O'Neill called Weapons of Math Destruction, and she talks about the ethics of um, algorithms, which is quite timely now, whether you're in selling sure. or not, you should know something about the ethics of big data and machine learning and artificial intelligence, because every business will be attacked in some way around their revenue and cost model for the organizations you're selling into. So... As a result of this, Ian, I, I now have a very substantial business where very smart actuaries keep referring me to, he's the listening guy, this guy hears what we actually say, and, and I have no idea what they're saying. And a lot of us in selling get hung up on knowing the content. If we can create a context where they can discover and solve their own problems, 
we are a trusted advisor and that transforms our relationship. They never asked me for a price. I just sent in a proposal and away they went. If you want to learn how companies go from 20% to 90% of their team hitting their numbers or how companies grew from $17 million to over $100 million in three years, then get your pre-order copy of Same Side Selling. In fact, if you go to samesideselling.com, you can see a number of bundles that will get you a bunch of bonuses if you pre-order right now. Just go to samesideselling.com to learn more. That's exactly it, and it's something that I think gets lost on a lot of people, and I want to tie this back to some concepts that are going to be familiar for our listeners, which is this whole notion of the single best person to overcome any perceived objection is the person who raised it. And the easiest way to do that is with great questions where, to your point, you're listening for the things they're not saying. So, for example, we often teach in same-side selling this principle of having a mutual understanding with the clients about what the results or success should look like at the end. Mm. And one of the questions that we encourage people to ask, which scares the heck out of many executives, is you ask them – so. What would make it so that you don't get those results? Mm. And everyone's petrified. And I said, so would you rather know that up front or would you rather find out after you don't achieve success? And how comfortable is the client going to feel if you ask that question up front when no other vendor asked a question or anything like that? And if you want to be perceived as the – most trusted, most valued person in the room, it's probably going to be based on the questions you ask, not based on some brilliant statement that you make. And to take it a step further, uh, people often say, you know, the best salespeople are really customer-centric. And I say, look, that's really interesting, but it's not powerful. It's not potent. It's not what world-class sellers do. I think the difference between a world-class seller and a recreational seller when it comes to listening, world-class sellers don't listen for their customers' problems. They're listening for their customers' customers' problems. So if you can help connect those dots together, you're listening in a place that's going to have a massive impact. Yeah, ab- absolutely. It's it's the it's the questions that we guide people to. Someone says, "Oh, we're having this problem. Well, what happens if you don't solve that?" Because for some organizations, that's just kind of a nuisance. For other people, it's actually a really big deal. How about for you? Oh, well, we have this. It's a pretty big deal. Really, why? What else have you done to try and solve this? And then we're actually getting to the truth. And it's the the risk of the, the, the trap or the risk of scripts is that, and this is something before we got on the air we were talking about a little bit, which is, when people have scripts, the person asking the question tends to focus on the next question instead of listening to the answer that might take you in a totally different direction. Yeah, it's, it's super true. I mean, scripts are a hangover from the industrial economy where people were task-driven in a factory and we just transposed that 
today we're either in the information economy or the imagination economy, depending on which, whether you're selling into professional services or, or fixed product organizations. And, and if, if I was to provide a framework rather than a scripting, it would be try and avoid the why-based questions and try and explore what and how-based questions. They're so much richer. Why-based questions actually trigger us to when we were six years old and we did something wrong and our parents screamed at us and said, why did you do that? And when we ask why questions, uh, a lot of people you won't notice it unless you're listening deeply. They're actually triggered and they get very defensive. Now, don't get me wrong, there's a place for why-based questions, but it's usually not part of your first discovery meeting. And why-based questions have their place in methodologies. There's a methodology called the five whys. There's a methodology called six sigma. There's a methodology called root cause analysis that go and mm -hmm. explore heavily why-based questions. But for a lot of B2B selling scenarios, how would this business case be socialized beyond this decision? What are the things you see as getting in the way of this business case? These questions are going to elicit much richer responses from the prospect that helps them think about how they're going to sell the business case. Earlier on, I said the world-class sellers think not only about their customer, but they think about the customer's customer. The other thing they do really well is they're world champions at helping sell the business case to this solution rather than beating the competition. If all you do is get fixated on beating the competition, you'll lose out to toilet paper. I've yeah. got a brilliant example of that where a client of mine in New Zealand was in the last quarter of their financial year selling contact management software into a very large organization in New Zealand and they got to where they were expecting the purchase order a week out from their fiscal year end and they were told, sorry, um, we've had to delay the decision. And they said, but we, we're the selected vendor and you said the budget set aside. They said, well, it was. But Kimberly Clark, who are famous for making diapers, but they also make toilet paper, made a deal the CFO couldn't refuse. If we bought a year's worth of toilet paper in advance, we would get a 75% discount. And he put all the money for this contact center project <laughs> into toilet paper. And if you were listening to the business case, one of the questions you would have been asking is, what's the process the CFO goes through to approve this or the procurement committee? And you would have known that that's a possibility. But for most of us, we're just fixated on beating the competition and becoming the preferred vendor. World-class sellers listen for the business case, yeah, not well, just the competition. Well, it's funny. We'll, we'll often coach people to ask a couple questions, one being, so compared to other things on your plate, how important is it to solve this issue right now? And then, of course, once someone gives that, it's, why is that? Which is a why question, but we're just trying to better understand. Is it, for example, if someone says, well, we have to have, to have this implemented by – June 1st, why is a great question in that context? Because it could be, well, we just figured we couldn't do it by May 1, so I just arbitrarily picked June 1. That makes June mm -hmm. 1 not a real date. But yeah. if someone said, oh, because all these things happen later in June, and if we don't get it done now, it won't get done for another year. Well, that now tells you as the seller that you need to be proactive because if the client feels there's any jeopardy in that June 1 date, it's not going to happen for another year. And it's those sorts of 
insights that you get by asking the secondary and tertiary questions that I think many people overlook. And I, I love this whole notion of that comparison of people speak at 900 words per minute, but they or they think at 900 words per minute, they speak at 125 words per minute, tells us that, look, there's a lot of stuff that isn't being said. And if mm-hmm. we're not asking those questions, we're missing something. And here's the beauty of it. The person who was speaking would probably love to share some of those other things, but they feel like, no, no, I'm done. I've had my turn. And if you give them the turn to keep going, you'd be fascinated how much more comes out of it. I often hear from my clients where they'll have a relatively new rep, and the rep says, well, I don't really understand our technology well enough. And they'll often say, well, gee, Ian's here doing this keynote. Do you think he could handle this meeting? Well, he could, yeah, but he doesn't know our stuff. Yeah, but he knows which questions to ask. Aha, okay. So now you know, now we're getting getting to something, which is if you ask the right questions, the subject matter experts will become um, – they'll, they'll, they'll rise to the surface. And you obviously have to have enough familiarity that you don't ask awful questions. Um, I remember we, we did a lot of work in the pharmaceutical industry in my prior business. We had a one of my um, one of my reps was coming out to a meeting. It was brand new and – we were talking to this pharmaceutical company about their clinical trials, and they were talking about their phase three clinical trials. And it's in the pharmaceutical industry. It's a very specific concept, which is the human trials before drugs get submitted for approval by regulatory authorities. And the last stage is the third, the third phase. And um, and and the this person on my team says, yeah. And in fact, not only can we handle the phase three, but I'm sure we could handle phase four and five too. That was um, that was one of those cases where sitting back and listening probably would have been a better choice. <laughs> mm. And I think we've probably speak a lot in a in a Western context, Ian. But I think we've got a lot to learn from higher context cultures such as China, Korea, Japan, um, the Inuit culture of North America, the Maori culture of New Zealand. Uh, Aboriginal culture of Australia in the use of silence and being comfortable. High context cultures are very nuanced. The exact same word in a different setting can mean something completely different. If you say something to an elder, it has a different meaning is if you say it to a peer, for example. But what uh, Western people aren't comfortable with is just being in that moment and sitting with silence. And a lot of people in my research group, I've got 1,400 people in a tracking survey for my listening research. One of the one of the themes that comes up is I feel silence is awkward. And uh, that's just because that's our orientation in the West. We feel like the minute space is there, we need to fill it. And I think for all of us, if all we did was just count to one, two, three in our head <laughs> as somebody paused to speak, we transform the meeting. I'm much more comfortable with silence. In fact, silence to me is is a is a is a tool I can use with great power and elegance. But in in these high context cultures, particularly Chinese, Japanese, and Korean, the silence is used most potently by the most senior person in the room, and silence can go on for three to four minutes. And if you come from that context, it's okay. It's a sign of respect that gives everybody in the room a moment to connect with what they're thinking about. So if there's one thing we can learn from the East, it's silence is okay. 
You know, it's a brilliant insight. I know as a professional speaker, when there are new speakers, they'll often say, so if you're trying to think of something, what, what do you do to fill the space? I said, why do you feel you have to fill the space? <laughs> just if, if you have a thought, just pause. And if you stay, if you maintain eye contact with the audience, they'll be right with you. And it's going to seem like forever, but if you're silent for five seconds, what do you think the impact's going to be on the next thing you say? You're going to be hyper-focused on that, but it's something that very often people in sales roles and even executives have that challenge of, well, there's dead silence. I have to fill it. And I think what you're teaching us is you don't have to fill it. Yeah, it's it's quite natural. Um, it's kind of been institutionalized in us from school and workplaces. But again, for the great relationships that you enjoy in your personal life, you can sit with someone in silence for two and three minutes and it's completely okay. It's it's not a problem. When you're in a great relationship, silence is a, a natural sidekick. When you're not, you try and fill that space, the relationship won't evolve. So just just explore how you use silence or notice people who use silence well. And a well-timed pause before the question, again, gives them more time to think about their response as well. That's fantastic. I mean, the, the insight you have around this is just spectacular. And, uh, and I'm sure my audience is going to want to learn more. What's the best way for people to reach out and connect with you and learn more about what you're doing? There's five myths of listening. So if you just go to oscartrimboli.com forward slash listening myths, and you'll be able to download a double-sided PDF that outlines the five myths. And on the other side of the PDF, it'll tell you exactly what to do about those myths. And one of those myths is focusing on what people are saying rather than to listen to what's unsaid. Absolutely brilliant. So I encourage everybody to go um, check this stuff out. Go visit Oscar's site. Um, I learned a ton. I know our audience has. And uh, I just can't thank you enough for sharing your wisdom. It's really been some fascinating content. So thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Oscar shared so much amazing insight. I was absolutely captivated. Let me give you a quick 30-second recap of the key information I think you can use and apply to your business right away. Remember, we think about 900 words per minute, and we speak about 125 words per minute. So we have to be listening for what's not said as much as what we're listening for what is said. In fact, maybe even more so. I love the idea of asking questions like, I'm curious what else you were thinking about that right now. And questions like that, that will really uncover the truth. And remember, the idea is that we want to draw on analogies, metaphors, memories versus words that can help spark true conversations and get to the truth in our discussions. Remember, this show gets a direction from you, the listener. If there's a topic I should have on or a guest you think I should have on the show, just fire me a note to ian at ianaltman.com. Have an amazing week, add value, and grow revenue in a way everybody can embrace, especially your customer.